Well, hey, good morning, Center Church. I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm excited that no matter where you're watching from, that you've joined us to worship. Again, if we've not met before, my name is John. I get to serve as a pastor here. There's one thing that I've really missed over the last couple of months, and it's competition. <laughs> because uh, I am an avid basketball fan. I love watching uh, the Boston Celtics play basketball. And I was really excited for the playoffs. And then COVID-19 hit. And there's been no competition. Maybe you feel my pain. Like there's just no sporting events. Uh, one of the things that for, for me is interesting is that I love to see my team, or if I'm on that team, win. I love competition because there's a winner and a loser. And I'm not alone. You are probably just as annoyed as I am when you are in the middle of a competition of some sort, whether it's over Xbox or your team or you're watching uh, soccer or whatever, and it's a draw. I hate ties, okay? I, I need resolution. I need clarity. And American culture and the culture I grew up in loves winners, and we don't like to lose. We don't actually celebrate losing ever. It's, it would be really lame if the Marvel movies that came out and have dominated the box office the last couple years, if all of those movies ended with a tie, they would be the worst movies ever. Uh, I just finished the last 10 weeks watching Through the Last Dance, which was an incredible documentary on Michael Jordan and the, and the incredible run the Bulls had in the NBA championships in the 90s. It was awesome to watch. But I love it because Michael Jordan liked to win. He wasn't content to lose. But there's actually a, a magnetic trait about people who follow Jesus, something that all of us are actually drawn to that is countercultural, and it's subtle. And, and when you see it in a person, it's like you just are immediately drawn to it, yet it looks often like losing. It's this word, humility. Humility. All of us want it for ourselves, all of us desire it in our relationships and, and the people we work for and the people we work with. We want them to be more humble, yet it's so hard to find because it's so subtle. I want to give you a spiritual definition for humility before we jump into uh, Mark chapter 15. And it's this, humility is recognizing who I am in light of who God is. Let me say that one more time. Humility it's recognizing, it's having a real awareness of who I am, my position, my status, my identity in light of who God is. The scene we're about to read in Mark 15 is set in the Praetorium. The Praetorium was the governor's palace. It's where Pilate, who, as David talked through last week, oversaw Jesus' trial, and now we're moving towards the cross right at the end. We're in the last two chapters of the book of Mark, but the Praetorium was an incredible palace. It was an incredible place. I mean, towers ranging 75 to 145 feet high, hand-cut marble at its base, carried in with sweat and tears to put this scene together by hand. Bronze fountains, canals running through, gardens everywhere, domesticated birds. I mean, this was a beautiful, beautiful place. It's where winners lived. It's where winners hung out. And yet it's the scene that Mark writes about in chapter 15. I want you to grab your Bibles. And, and again, as we're journeying through the book of Mark, it's important to remember, we talked about this months ago when we started this journey, that Mark is set in an honor and shame culture. 
In first century Israel, to bring honor to your family was the highest value and to bring shame to your family was evil. It casts you out from society. To be, to be ashamed, to have defect, to be a shameful person, to do something that would bring shame on your family was the worst thing you could do. And so military leaders, kings, those who were victorious in government, those people were honored. People who were lepers, people who were heretics, people who had broken the law, they were shamed. People who were weak, they were shamed. And so all accounts in first century Israel of military leaders, kings, people who were strong in government, uh, people who had high status, when they died, they were exaggerated. I mean, they were glorified. It was, they were honored. But that's not how Mark records the account of Jesus. Look at what Mark writes in Mark 15. If you have a Bible, we're going to start right in verse 16. Here's what Mark says. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, clearly mocking Jesus. Again and again, they struck him on the head with the staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him, ultimately to kill Jesus. Mocked, spit on, harassed, tortured, I don't know about you, but this is hard for me to read. This is hard for me to have to preach. As I studied this passage over the last couple of weeks, I just was struck again and again by the humility of Jesus in Mark. Because actually, Mark's emphasis in this account is not actually the physical violence. Mark, of all the Gospels, records the least about the actual details that are taking place leading up to the cross. But Mark is certainly trying to contrast the shame and the torture with Jesus' incredible humility, with his meekness, with his gentle approach to this suffering. See, most of us like the Jesus we see in the first half of Mark. See, the first eight chapters of Mark are Jesus taking names. I mean, he's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's teaching incredible things. He's revealed himself over and over as the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God. But in the latter half of Mark, Jesus suffers. He's betrayed. He weeps. He's humble and he's humiliated. This is the king of the world. This is the same Jesus you and I have chosen to follow. Friends, here's a truth that we cannot miss when it comes to the cross and how Jesus responds to suffering. There's a difference between being humbled and being humble. There's a difference between humbled, being humbled, which is an event. When you lose, you get humbled. But there's also a huge difference between that and being humble, having a disposition of humility, 
approaching the situations and even the crises of life, which you and I have not faced any shortage of the last couple months, with humility, with grace, with a Jesus-like approach. Here's what you already know. The CDC has backtracked, and they've probably been humbled. If you're working in government right now, you've probably had a moment where you were humbled, where you were wrong about something. Friends, families who posted articles about the coronavirus in the first week, as opposed to what they're posting now, a lot of us have changed our tune. We've been wrong at some point in the last couple months, and it's a humbling experience. Even the disciples, see, they experienced multiple miracles, teaching, incredible moves of God, and yet they didn't really get it. It wasn't until much later into the New Testament, even halfway through the book of Acts, that we see these disciples being humble, not just humbled, actually experiencing the daily humility that Jesus walked with. Humility, friends, is recognizing who I am in light of who God is. I remember getting one of the most painful emails of my life my junior year of college. I went to school in Canada, which some of you already know that. In Canada, hockey is a really big deal. Now, you may think, yeah, I'm a big hockey fan. I'm a Red Wings fan. I, I, I like hockey. You're not a real hockey fan unless you live in Canada. I mean, they take it to a religious level. And so everyone I went to college with essentially played hockey in middle school and high school. I was determined because I was a transplant from Grand Rapids to the small province of New Brunswick that I was going to make the college hockey team. Now, if you're watching this, you're laughing because you know me and I'm not a skilled hockey player. I struggle in team sports in general, but I have drive, okay? Like, I really wanted to make this team. And so I bought a cheap pair of skates, I bought a stick, and I went to free skate and worked at it a lot. I mean, for years, I practiced skating. I actually got pretty good at playing the game of hockey, but there was one problem. I couldn't stop. (laughs) I couldn't stop on my skates. Like, that is the most important thing to be an agile hockey player (laughs) is to not have to use other people and the boards to stop. But that was one of my problems. I could not do a quick stop. And so I go to these tryouts, our college hockey team, right before the season's about to start, All my friends are there. I mean, all of my roommates are playing. They were great hockey players. They knew how to stop. I didn't know, but I decided I'm going for it, and hopefully I'll be able to at least ride the bench so I can hang out with my buddies every Monday night. So I go to the tryout. Didn't go so well. I had to use my friends as bumpers, kind of like a bowling ball bumping off people. That's kind of what I look like. I could not figure out how to stop. The rest of the drills were okay. I made it shooting, passing. I I was okay at those. I leave that really feeling like I could have a good chance. Like, yeah, I can't stop. But I did a lot of other things right, okay? I can at least warm up the bench during these games. So the coach emails all of us the next day and puts a list out, and uh, my name was not on it. I didn't make the team. I had to read Coach Elliott's email that said, Hey, John, you've put in a lot of effort and you've come so far, which is his way of saying you're terrible, (laughs) but not as terrible as you were a couple years ago. Okay, so he said, you've come so far. You just need to work on your skating, i.e., you need to learn how to stop. 
That was a really, really humbling moment for me. I'm glad that my, the people sitting behind me in class did not see me read this email. I was humbled, but that didn't make me a, a humble person because what humility really is is not just about having a lot of humiliating moments. It's about seeing yourself. It's about perspective. Have, having a real recognition of who you are in light of who God is. See, the person who's humbled versus the person who is hum, humble, I mean, the person who demonstrates humility, they're, they're patient. They're open to being wrong. They don't think they have all the answers. They're generous. They're gentle. They're, they're willing to listen. They pray first. And that's what it means to be a humble person. But often we mistake humility for weakness. We get it mixed up in our minds. But can I just remind you, the person we read about who is being tortured, mocked, spit on, harassed, is also the most strong, confident, bold, committed, have it together human being to ever walk the earth. We're talking about Jesus here. And yet Jesus was radically humble. He submitted to the Father's will. He didn't defend himself. He actually let the same Roman guards that he gave breath to run over him and nail him to a cross. I don't know about you, but that changes my definition of humility. But look how Mark continues the story. Read with me in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus is moving towards Golgotha, this hill in which they crucified criminals. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him King of the Jews. Humiliating. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So you, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Remember what David preached on last week? You're going to do that? Well, look at you now. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Ridiculing Jesus. Humiliating him. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and Jesus had no shortage of confrontations with these people throughout the gospel of Mark. Well, look what happens. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They are mocking Jesus. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is humiliating. And yet Jesus doesn't speak up, doesn't fight back, doesn't shout back insults at the people who are insulting him. He's quiet. So friends, can I ask a question? What kept Jesus on the cross? Have you ever thought about that? What kept him on the cross? It certainly wasn't a lack of power. Disciples had seen Jesus' incredible power, his, his sovereignty over creation, the fact that he alone is sustaining their breath. I mean, he, they understood that 
That was what Jesus was capable of. It wasn't a lack of power. It wasn't a lack of ability. It was humility. It was submission to the Father's will. Even for Jesus, the Son of Man, he had the ability to recognize who he was in light of who his Father was. What would it mean for you to start living that way? What would it take for you and I to understand that God wants to create in us humility, even in this time, this time where we've been wrong, this time where relationships are a little bit more strained than usual, the time where the pressure's on at work, the pressure's on to, to make some things happen. Maybe you're in charge of having to do some reopening things for your company, and you, you've got to figure stuff out. Even when the pressure's on, what would change everything is if God would do in us that same work of humility. If I could speak just real openly to us as a church, I think there's two specific areas that on a macro scale, beyond the situations of our life, that we need humility. Two spaces in our world that, the, that frankly, people who are far from God are craving you and I to, to demonstrate humility, to demonstrate a different way. Number one is in our political conversations. Friends, honestly, we know by now that our government has not done the best job of trying to figure this thing out. And yet, it is so easy as followers of Jesus to get trapped in the conversations online, the back and forth, the slander, the mocking of our leaders. I mean, it, it doesn't end. But here's what would change our conversations when it comes to politics. If you and I decided to pursue humility. What would that change? What would our conversations online look like? Let me be real honest. There's a tendency even in me over the last couple months to read things that friends post or the latest news articles and think, man, it would be great if everyone knew what I knew because then they would all do the right thing. <laughs> and I think everyone's wrong except me a lot of the times. And God is teaching me even in how I'm understanding that information, he wants to, to do a work of humility. I need to see myself, not for my opinions, not for what I think is right, but for who God has created, to me, created me to be. That changes how I interact in pol political conversations. That's number one. Number two, we need humility in the area of racial inequality. I just say something you, as you're friend, as your pastor, someone who loves you and is for you, if we are more concerned with what stores we can and cannot go to and not as concerned when our black brothers and sisters die unjustly, we've missed the point of the cross. We've missed right here what Jesus is trying to demonstrate. Paul in Ephesians writes about this. He writes again about it in Philippians saying that, that Jesus' death on the cross tore down the dividing wall and is creating one new humanity. We need to do more than just pray. For some of us, it's repenting of prejudice. Others of us, it is taking action. For some of us, it's just walking across the street and getting to know our neighbor who has a different skin tone than us. We need humility in that. We do not have all the answers, and we are certainly not living out God's best in the church. When it comes to racial equality, we need humility there. I need 
humility there. And you may say, man, you're making a lot of political statements in this sermon. Friends, these are not political statements. These are gospel statements. Look at what Mark writes about Jesus. I mean, over and over again, we see him demonstrate this humility, not because he had a penchant just for being a nice person, but because he believed that in his humility, God was going to redeem the world. The people were worth dying for. That the people you disagree with were worth dying for. They're worth practicing humility. I love Andrew Murray's words on humility. He's got a great short book on humility. And and he says this, that the chief mark of counterfeit spirituality is a lack of humility. Let me say that one more time. The chief mark of counterfeit spirituality is lack of humility. If you want to see someone who is growing in Christ and depending on Jesus more, maturing in him, you're going to see that subversive, quiet, but magnetic trait of humility. That's what I want for you. So Jesus wants for all of us. What moves me most about the cross is what Mark records in verse 39. Centurion, someone who was in charge of crucifying these criminals, including Jesus, probably blood still on his hands, has this moment of transformation. And when he turns up, he looks to the cross that Jesus is hanging on and says, surely this was the son of God. This is him. I I missed it. This was the Messiah. But again, was it a demonstration of power that led to that transformation? No. It was Jesus' humility. It was our Savior hanging on a cross, believing that every single person was worth dying for. And that us practicing, not just being humbled in an event, but practicing humility, having the right perspective on who we are in this world, in light of who God is, that it really does change everything. It transforms relationships. And so I have one simple ask for you. As you're sitting there, probably at home, maybe in the living room, maybe at the kitchen, maybe with family or maybe by yourself, I want to encourage you, church, take a step towards community. And the next week, I want to encourage you as we launch into home churches to get more information on that. Because here's what happens. When you get in community, which is kind of hard to find right now, maybe you've done some of that on Zoom, but even family gatherings over Skype and FaceTime just don't feel exactly the same. As we start to step into our future as a church, I want to encourage you to join a home church Join that community because here's what happens. When you're actually in real relationships with one another, you're sitting across the table from someone, it it quickly makes that post you disagree with a real person. It changes your convictions. It causes you to think and ultimately it humbles you. It, It gives you a spirit of humility. For others of you, maybe joining a home church is not your next step. You don't feel ready for that. I want to invite you to do something that every one of us can do. This week, pray a simple prayer. God, put me in a position to experience and grow in humility. God, put me in in an environment, in a conversation in which I need to demonstrate humility, that I need your help to be humbled. And then watch out (laughs) because God will give you experiences to be humbled and to hopefully grow from that and to become a person a disciple of humility.
I want to pray for you, and then we're about to sing a song, Oh, Praise the Name, where it literally records the story of Jesus, and it talks about the power of the cross. I want to encourage you, as we sing that, not just to sing it, not just to watch it, but to internalize it, to let it speak to you, to let it humble you, and to experience the power of the cross in a real fresh way in the middle of this moment. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters on the other side of this camera. And God, I'm asking that as a church and as individuals, you would make us people who are marked by humility. Because for you, humility changed the world. It transformed centurions and Roman soldiers. It changed the narrative of even the gospel accounts that we read today. And so God, help us to be those kind of people. And I pray for the person who, who's struggling with that right now. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out on them, that they would experience the, the full depth of your love and grace for them. And that would change their perspective. That they would see themselves in light of who you are. And that, that would change their relationships, their interactions, what they do online, what they say, how they think. God, thank you for doing that work in us. Help us to worship you well as we seek to be people of, of humility. In Jesus' name, amen.